We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. with Father David Nix, a pilgrim priest, per se. He's, uh, if you heard the era's song, I've been everywhere, man. Uh, he's been everywhere, man. So, <laughs> Father, how you doing? Good, Steve. Thanks for having me. So we have him on to talk about evangelization. He came from a focus background. If anybody's familiar with focus, pretty sure everyone on here has. And now he's just been, you've been in Africa? Uh, uh, all six, well, let's see. Five continents minus um, never Australia, never uh, Antarctica. Okay, okay. Uh, and now he's in the uh, the hills of Denver, the, right at the base of the mountains, basically. Uh, you see the big Gaylord out there, turn left and you'll find him. So That's right. We miss, <laughs> we miss you out here in Denver, Steve. I miss it out there too. I mean, it is nicer weather out here, I think. Even though I, I did, I, I wasn't, wasn't a big fan of the uh, bugs and humidity when I left. And that was awesome out there. But anyway, that's another story. Denver's uh, troublemaking evangelist is gone back east. Yes, <laughs> you're, you're a troublemaker, Steve. No, dude, no, we we won't go there for these guys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, for, for while out there, I did the uh, uh, couple festivals, gave away medals. Uh, obviously, when I was doing Uber, I was doing the same thing. If anybody got in the car, we would we would talk about the faith. And Father's going to bring up of what is true evangelization, which. What are some ideas to do? What things don't do? What are some misunderstandings about it? And uh, yeah, what is is it Catholic? So, Father. Yeah, great. You know, I wasn't thinking of this story, but you just said the word Uber and popped into my mind. One way to evangelize is to give out miraculous medals. And, you know, there were many times in my life when I would be on an airplane and I, sort of my goal was I want someone to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior by the time the airplane lands. And now that's great. That's actually, a, that's part of Catholicism that was around 1500 years before Protestantism. So that's a great goal. Mm -hmm. But it took me some time to learn that there's also seeds that are planted, very, very scriptural, um, many, 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 many uh, parables from our Lord to show that the most we can do is to plant these seeds unless we're really given miracles like St. Saint, Saint Francis Xavier and stuff. Most of the time, or we're in the unitive stage of prayer, people could just see the face of Teresa of Avila and convert. St. Catherine of Siena, whose feast is in a couple days, see her and convert, you know. Mm -hmm. But most of us, I'm certainly not, are not in the unitive stage of prayer. And so we have to plant these seeds. And one of the things I kind of switched to years ago, just a couple years ago, actually, is the miraculous medal. Have a priest bless them. In my case, I bless them. And um, I think it was St. Maximilian Colby called them silver bullets, or mm -hmm. at least at least his uh, the people who followed him called them the silver bullets. Because you have to remember, the Blessed Trinity, through Our Lady, promised a lot of graces to anybody who had this miraculous medal on. Now, I've noticed if you just give someone a miraculous medal, they're going to put it in their pocket and it's gone. It's going to get lost in the wash. But if you give it with a chain, and maybe we can give mm -hmm. the links to this later, you can get these miraculous medals out of uh, Colby Land or whatever it's called up in Chicago, um, Maryland, uh, down to like a dime mm -hmm. for a nice miraculous medal. And you can get these like clasp on chains off of Amazon for like a dime. Mm -hmm. So therefore it's 20 cents. They're really good looking necklaces with the miraculous medal for 20 cents. So my goal is kind of one a day, whether it's a waitress I meet if I'm in a restaurant or if I'm just walking, praying my rosary and I meet somebody. And I guess I have been doing this more than two years. I'd say probably close to 10 years, maybe just not at the volume that I have in my current goal. And I'll tell you this, Steve, 
I think in 10 years, two people have said no. Mm -hmm. Everyone says yes. Yeah. Atheists, Gothics, Protestants, Muslims, they all say yes. I think one atheist in, in Fort Collins gently told me no. But your Uber story reminds me something just a month ago. I had a young Saudi Arabian Uber driver, and I was going from uh, the light rail at Arapaho to my parents just a few miles west of there. And uh, we ended up in an interesting, because I love languages. You mentioned my missionary stuff, and I love studying languages and stuff. And he was, uh, we got into discussing Arabic, and he was telling me, you know, uh, the differences between the consonant and vowel system mm -hmm. from Arabic to English and everything. And uh, very, very polite young man, and we had a really great talk. And um, as we pulled into my parents where I was staying that night, I just pulled out the miraculous medal with the chain on my hand. And uh, I said to him, um, you know, Mary's mentioned in the Quran, and um, she's ever virgin in there. And Jesus promised a lot of graces through Mary's hands for anyone who would wear this. And I'd like to give it to you. And he turned around, the young Muslim, maybe 20, 25, also studying at a university, and he said, I can't accept that. And I said, oh, I mean, I, I understand, but you know, Mary's mentioned in the Quran, and, and he goes, and there, was, there was almost tears in his eyes, he goes, I, I can't take that. And then I realized, this is Arabian culture, this is Middle Eastern culture, that you're supposed to refuse a gift a couple times mm -hmm. before you actually accept it. So he wasn't saying no for religious reasons, he was saying no for cultural reasons. And what you're supposed to do is if you really want him to have it, you do have to insist past his two, whatever, reneggings or whatever. And I said, no, I really want you to have it. And with tears in his eyes, he took it. I said, would you wear it? He said, I will wear it. And, you know, he took it. Now, obviously, I, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't believe in ecumenism. So me mentioning the Quran, I wasn't leading him to think mm -hmm. these are one, one religion. He'd be the first to understand that. Um, so I don't, when I, when I, and you're going to hear me talk a little bit later about finding common ground, the, those who are like the ecumaniacs want to talk about common ground to show what we have in common and then not convert somebody. Obviously the goal is the salvation of their souls, right? But me pointing that out, that Mary's in the Quran and held as ever virgin, which is actually higher than what Protestants hold her to be, yeah. um, is, is just a reminder to him that there's no problem in taking this. My prayer, of course, is that he is baptized as a Catholic. And this is the thing. Instead of me really harping on him as I get out of my car at my parents' place, I'm going to trust in this case. There's other times when I have to turn up the heat a, a bit. Mm -hmm. But when I just have 30 seconds getting out of a car, I'm going to just entrust him to our lady to have her start converting him. Yeah, that made me think of the uh, Muslim lady I had a couple of months, about a half a year before I left, I think. Her name was Fatima. It was her birthday. I think mm. I, I can't. I can't remember if I texted that story or not. And so and we were just talking. I thought, oh yeah, Fatima. Okay, yeah, blah blah. And we started just talking about Fatima in general, and told her that you know what happened in 1917, etc. And she was just blown away. And she walked out with a miraculous medal. I go, well, here's the lady we were talking right. about. <laughs> now I've I've been harping on you to put them on chains for a while. Did you start putting oh. them on chains? Or you still give them? Yeah, you yeah, got them on chains. Yeah, I got I got it from the St. Paul you. Street team. They got a. A uh, bag of uh, chains for I think uh, uh, twelve bucks for a hundred. That's great, and I think there's a lot of uh, Muslims who go to Fatima actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, you, I don't think I've ever talked to you about this man. There's actually an, a Coptic Orthodox priest named Father Zachariah Botros. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, I got it. Uh, let's see, I got his. Uh, yeah, here it is, right here. His CDs. <laughs> Do you really? Oh yeah, that's him. Okay, so. Um, he's not a Catholic priest, but he is an Orthodox priest. So all the sacraments are valid mm -hmm. uh, for your listeners to know that. There's never been anybody that has reached more people for Christ on TV. Again, he's not a Catholic, but we can still say he's reaching people for Christ because it's it's an apostolic Orthodox church. Um, and you and I, Steve, we both believe extra ecclesia, nulla salus and stuff. But let's just talk numbers real quick with him. He's actually reached more people than Billy Graham. This guy mm -hmm. is is podcasting and doing satellite radio to something like 50 million Muslims a day in yeah. Arabic, yeah. telling them that Islam um, is a religion of violence and Jesus loved you. He Jesus loves you and he died for you, and he totally dismantles like like the number one Muslim arguments against um, Catholicism or I mean against 
Christianity, their number one argument is against the Trinity. And so he goes into really beautiful Trinitarian apologetics. And uh, I think it's over, a, I mean, unbelievable numbers. Jesse Romero is telling me, because him and Terry Barber have had him on before. Um, I'll have to check the numbers in my Evernote here, but I think it's like something like a million Muslim converts a year. And, he, and you know, I think it was Jesse or Terry telling me even the Catholic churches in the Middle East just have them show up and say, we've heard Father Zacharias, would you baptize us? So he's, a, he's leading people to the Catholic church. And I think this is a good launching point for your podcast today that um, there's so many different ways to evangelize. He's reaching 50 million Muslims mm -hmm. a, a day or a week. I can't yeah. remember the numbers. Um, through satellite radio and podcasting, and he's always on the run. I mean, there's there's a bounty on his head over $18 million, which is higher than we ever had on uh, Osama bin Laden's head. So he's, last place he was in like Huntington Beach, California, I think he stayed up in Minnesota. Jesse, Jesse Romero's telling me it's almost all Catholics' homes that he stays in. <laughs> um, now, I'm not dropping these different facts because Steve and I are, are ecumenical people at all. It sounds. Um, but, but, but we can say this. If there's an or if there's an Orthodox priest doing it, we need Catholic priests doing it then too. Amen to that. And also, it's sales. I mean, you don't walk in, and I used to be a uh, assistant orthopedic sales guy, and you don't walk into a foot doctor and pitch the back braces. You gotta, yeah. You find what they're looking for, and you go with it. I mean, I used to if somebody would walk by my table in a Utah Jazz shirt, just saying that, I, I would say something about, "Hey, go Jazz." Strike up yeah. the convo, and all of a sudden, hell, here we go. You're at my table now. <laughs> and because he grew up in the Middle East, like, you know, me getting out of a car in 30 seconds to, to hand him um, a miraculous medal, that's different than him who can get on, on his satellite radio for an hour a day. And in the most, he's almost like a living St. Paul. In the most loving way, he can tell you Islam's a satanic religion, mm -hmm. and Jesus is the only true God of the universe who is the son of God who came here and loved you enough to die for you and rose from the dead to restore you to God's grace. And the amazing thing is him absolutely dismantling the evil Islam. I mean, he's, this is the thing. He's always so clear. Muslims in the Middle East are not evil. Islam is evil. Muslims in the Middle East are not evil. Jesus died. This is actually genetically the closest to um, our, our Lord's uh, um, Jews, Jews and then Muslims because of that area. He's so clear how much Jesus loves them, but he has absolutely no problem saying this is an evil religion, you know? And this is one thing, Steve, I've learned in evangelization. If you, stay, if you say it with love, mm -hmm. you can get away with anything. I mean, anything. And we're so afraid these days. Oh, I have to only show the common ground and then just say, isn't it great? We both believe in God. No, if you actually have supernatural charity in your hearts, People can sense it. People can sense the truth, and you can tell them the hard truth. Like if if Ben Shapiro had me onto his show mm -hmm. to ask me, "Are you, am I saved as a Jew?" Um, I wouldn't say yes. I would say, you know what? Jesus loved you enough to die for you, and by His blood, you can be saved. And the thing is, someone who's a straight shooter like like Ben Shapiro. Do you think his feelings are going to be hurt at me looking him in the eyes and telling him a Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago loved him enough to die for him? Right. And that Jesus is the only way to the Father? No, I'm not saying that's going to convert him right there, but he's not going to go crying to the studio behind him and be like, oh, a priest hurt my feelings. Oh, if you say it with love, people can handle the truth. Yeah, I mean, I made 95% of the times I said someone was a heretic in the car, I got a tip. <laughs> I've got a season. I'd love to see your your Uber ratings. You were like probably all five stars and one stars, but you had very very few three stars. Every time there. someone brought it up, I'm going, "Well, we're doing 80 miles an hour. They're not jumping out of the car." But I didn't yeah. hit him over the head or anything. I would ask him questions, and I remember this one lady. She was an apostate, basically. She said she left the church, married some Protestant minister, and uh, I flat out told her, "Said you need to convert back. You're." you apostatized out of the church and we went on we she was throwing and i'm like i'm driving and she's trying she's looking through her bible throwing me quotes and i'm smacking her with the bible basically back at her to the yep. point that she asked me to stop Ooh. talking <laughs> did you get a tip from her five bucks did you really right. i never tip my uber driver as well you know once uh about 20 years ago right after i had my conversion and i was a little 
I probably used like a little bit too much fire and brimstone right after my conversion. I've kind of calmed down, but I, uh, I was with some friends and we were working in Alabama and our car broke down in the ghetto of the ghetto of New Orleans. And this black guy picked me up in a, in a car. He insisted it was the battery. And he looked just like hanging with Mr. Cooper, if you remember that TV show from like the 90s. Oh, yeah. So uh, there was two guys, two girls. This is before I was in seminary. And um, in fact, I was working for Focus. So it was actually a Focus team. And the, the neighborhood is so dangerous. They tried to call a pizza to get a pizza. And they said they'll only deliver across the street. They won't even go to that neighborhood. So our car's busted. I don't know why I jumped in with this guy um, who insisted he could fix the car, you know. But we get caught in rush hour traffic in New Orleans. We're on this huge bridge crossing over to get to uh, an auto auto store place, one of those big warehouse auto store places. And then on the uh, right before that, I had to actually call him, um, maybe from the inside. I can't remember where it was, but it was all like the phone number he gave me was kind of this like sensual music. It sounded like he was just trying to meet women and stuff, you know? It's like, okay, whatever. So on the way back, I look in his... Um, uh, what do you call it? The the thing above your head. Uh, vanity mirror. Um, yeah, va yeah, visor, yeah. whatever. And there's a picture of him and his family, his wife and his two kids. And I'm like, wait a minute, his voicemail sounds like this is the number he gives out to you know girls. And I was like, so man, are you Christian? He's like, man, yeah, every every black man in the South Baptist. And so we're you know top is open window. We're back in this bridge, on the way, and I go, uh, so wait. It sounds like on your voicemail you're interested in meeting girls. He's like, oh, yeah. And I was like, but you're married right there, right? That's your family, right? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, so you know 1 Corinthians 6 says that fornicators will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's like, oh, man, I don't know. I don't know. I was like, so we. I just went like how his salvation's in danger, right. you know, as we're in this uh, in the ghetto of New Orleans. And I'm, I'm just hammering with like how he, he can go to hell for these different women in his life. I think his name was Derek or something. I can't remember. And so then like, I don't know. 20 minutes later, he's trying to sell me a car, literally trying to sell me a car and drops me off. And uh, we finally get to my brother and sister who were in college in, in New Orleans at the time. Well, I'm back in Alabama working focus and he calls me like a month later, not kidding. And, and I'm like, hey, Derek, what's up? And he's I was like, man, I'm not really interested in the cars. I, I know you were trying to talk to me about that. And he goes, no, I'm not calling for the cars. I was like, All right, what are you calling for? He's like, I just want to let you know. I left all those women and I go, what? And he goes, yeah, from what you said to me, I was just thinking about it. I'm back with my wife. I'm back with my kids. And I, I left him because you just really convicted me. And I was like, you're really not calling to sell me a car. He's like, I don't want to sell you a car. I just want to thank you for what you said to me. And I was like, you're welcome. You're welcome, man. Yeah. And so that's one of those examples. I wasn't the smoothest at evangelization. I didn't, I mean, I didn't start with probably the most beautiful part of the gospel. Um, <laughs> But it's but that's the crazy thing is just a little bit of the truth mm -hmm. is enough to be that seed. It doesn't have to be the exact like perfectly lined up delivery and you look great and feel great and, and you're going to be like, you know, looking like Joel Olstein in the back of some guy's car or something. Sometimes it's just a sloppy presentation and God takes it to the end zone. You oh. just have a little handoff and God can take it to the end zone. So that's I think if your listeners learn one thing today. You don't have to be an expert in it all. Now, don't be obnoxious and tell everyone they're going to go to hell because that's not going to win everybody, anybody really, well, yeah. except on really rare occasions like that, right? But um, doing your best uh, can can convert a lot of people, even if your best isn't very impressive at a human level. Yeah, even if it's just showing beautiful photos. I mean, Facebook got I me, mean, my brother, I kind of my brother and I basically, and then. Uh, I know a couple guys that came in because of Facebook posts I would post. A buddy of mine just died wow. last week, so that was the reason why he came back into church 15 minute, uh, fifteen years ago. was just those, Amazing. and I'm going, really? I, did, I, did. I was just praying for this. Behind this screen is the is my little altar, my hermitage up here, and I was just praying for him at the Memento for the Dead. Um, t can, can you share his story a little bit? Yeah, I mean, he was born Cajun. Uh, from uh, New Orleans, uh, grew up in in Columbia, South Carolina, and him and I were basically uh, good friends when I was a personal trainer and uh, helped out the radio show he worked at, and he was a DJ, and they would ask me to come in, but our goal was he was 400 pounds, and they had a little th spoof on the morning show to uh, Don't Feed Done was the title of it, and so we would, myself and another guy, we just busted him up, 
And I think in two months we had him lose a hundred pounds. Wow. Uh, he's, he was only two years younger than I, and, uh, long story short, short, he went out to, well, was it a couple years later, my, our, my dad died. And then my brother comes into the church through my posts on Facebook on politics. And then he tried, he texts me up one of ignorance of scriptures, ignorance of Christ. And I didn't want to hear anything. I saw the post. People were calling me up saying, Hey, what's wrong with your brother? And I said, I don't know. You call him. You talk to him. And I remember a buddy of mine, he he was the one that got me out of uh, Looneyville, communist thinking, basically. Mm. Oh, but, you were? I didn't know you were in that direction, really? Yeah, come out of college. I was a straight up nut, uh, you know, gun grabbing, oh, wow. all that stuff. I had to, you know, reprogram myself. And he, buddy of mine embarrassed me, kind of like how you told your friend that the one guy driving. And I went, uh, he told me, so you better start reading before you say anything else dumb, basically. And that made me start reading. Then I got another job. I got a job in medical and I started seeing the Obamacare coming through. And my brother saw the post and he came into the church. And then uh, after he texted me up, Ignis Scripture and Christ, this was the first time I read the Gospels, all, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then I started posting. And then our boy Dunn, he ended up texting us up and says, yeah, I see, see some of your posts. Uh, what do I got to do to go to confession? I go, oh, wow, really? Uh, so wow. <laughs> brought him up to uh, brought him up to the upstate of South Carolina and introduced him to our priest up there. And it was about a 25, 30-minute confession. And he goes in there and bless me, Father, right? And it's been, what, 15 years since my last confession. I think Father told him, well, I got time. <laughs> Good. Awesome work, Steve. And then... Uh, how did he die? He had a heart attack. Uh, uh -huh. Stress. I, I'm guessing just because of overweight lifestyle, just mm -hmm. caught up to him in the uh, stress he had of law school. The, he had returned to the church, huh? He returned. He talked to my brother a year ago when my brother visited Phoenix. So he was still in. Um, obviously, we weren't talking every day. We, I talked to him literally yeah. a week and a half ago. He died last week, a week before that, about mm -hmm. another friend of ours, uh, his good friend that just died too. And so we're thinking he was enrolled in the scapular. Obviously, you know, that doesn't, you know, seal the deal, but he was enrolled. He had it. He was wearing it. And he's, I think he changed his lifestyle a lot from it, uh, wow. from what I understand. So, you know, I think, it, you know, why I think it seals the deal, Steve, is because the people who aren't living in it anymore, for some mysterious reason or other, they just take it off. Yeah. They got so, as a way to get it off you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they have, a, yeah. And the individual does too. So I think, I really do think it seals the deal. Well, That's a good sign. It's great. I mean, we're it's not going to start. We may not start as. Yeah, I mean, we won't start his canonization process, but I, I think that's a great sign if he was enrolled and wearing it. Yeah, that's great. No, so yeah, and I was beforehand. I was saying a decade for him to stay in. You know, anyways. Yeah. So well, that's a great point, Steve. I think because we, we in the Catholic Church, we've taken so much of an example from Protestants here, even the Catholic evangelization organizations. As soon as someone is in a Bible study or entered RCIA or something, we kind of consider them, I don't know, a little uh, five point checks, you know, yeah. we check it off on our belt. Like, well, they came into RCIA or they, you know. And I think you were smart to keep praying for him because, you know, the RCA number, something, what, 80 percent of those who enter RCA leave. Yeah, um, yeah. It wasn't the case 100 years ago, but this is because there's such a disease of misinformation. Someone gets excited about Catholicism. They read their way into the church and then they hear the opposite from the pulpit for years. Mm -hmm. This is why lay people have to keep up with the people that they've brought the faith to, because you go to a parish where you're going to hear, hear heresy from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. And, and someone who could have been fervent about Catholicism two years ago, by the time they're done hearing a year or two of loosey-goosey sermons, not only are they out of the church, not only they might they think of going to evangelicalism, at that point, they might just fully leave Christianity uh, yeah. if they've heard the exact opposite from the pulpit. So you got to keep up with people in two ways. One, catechetically, make sure they're still learning, make sure you're praying for them. But then also, too, you got to continue to shepherd them. I wish all priests did their job in shepherding, but after someone actually comes around, you have to keep shepherding them and get them to the right parish. Mm -hmm. Because if you make God, if God makes a great convert through you and they end up at the wrong parish, they're going to get their brain rewired, just like you used that term five minutes ago. They're going to get their brain rewired to really the same direction it was years before in concert with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah, my, I remember the first time I did a festival was in Spartanburg, and uh, we were in between two parishes. One parish, 
the priest said, why you, why do, why do they need evangelization? The other parish was singing happy birthday at the end of mass. And I remember asking a buddy of mine going, where do we send these guys? If anybody has any interest, I can't yeah. send them to either one. Cause one just told me, why are you doing it? The other one sings Kumbaya after the final blessing. I mean, it was easier in Greer because Prince of Peace was literally a mile and a half away. And we had, uh, the, uh, we have a, the Bob Jones University, you know, the most anti-Catholic oh, yeah. school. A Calvinist? Yeah, basically. I mean, I, there's you know, Father Lawnecker, I think he's come from out of, he's come out of it. I know my bud Jonathan's come out of it. Mm. Uh, quite a few good Catholics have come out of it, but they still mm. have, you know, Catholic stuff banned on it. But they, they had students coming up to our table. But it was, at least it was easier. There was a good parish a mile and a half away. Like, go there. You yeah. go there right now. And th maybe they did. I have no idea. But yeah, yeah you, like you said, well, you set up to a bad we, one. We were talking 15 minutes ago about Father Botros, who's making all these converts all across the Middle East. It can't be harder than them, right? No. I mean, at least, uh, and, and that's, but on the other hand, in some sense, it is harder because you know Islam's a different faith where if you go to the wrong parish, you're not really sure. Either way, we have to keep up with the people mm -hmm. who um, may come around because of, actually, talking about Muslims and the littlest thing, um, a real neat story. When I was a, a priest on loan to a different diocese from where I am right now, uh, a, a young man from one of the Middle Eastern countries showed up and he um, wanted to become Catholic. And uh, him and I ended up talking. He was actually raised in an orphanage in Saudi Arabia. And I said, well, what did it? What, what made you want to become Catholic? And he said, well, when he was in an orphanage, he grew up in the orphanage, I think in the 90s, so young guy, early 20s, maybe mid-20s when I met him two years ago. And uh, he was in an orphanage, and they played home alone. And apparently, I don't even remember this. I, I, I mean, probably in high school, I saw Home Alone every Christmas. I wasn't one of those kids who watched a movie you know, 50 times in his life, but I probably saw Home Alone four or five times. And I, even at, having watched it four or five times, I don't remember this, but apparently the kid does the sign of the cross at some point. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that now. Yeah. Do you remember that? Okay. Uh -huh. Well, he saw that. And as a 10 year old orphan who only spoke Arabic, it must've been like subtitled in, in, in Arabic or maybe overdubbed. Uh, he sees the sign of the cross and it haunts him, Steve. Uh -huh. The sign of the cross haunts him for, as a 10 year old. What is it? He wants to know. He hits 11 years old. What's the what's the sign of the cross? 12 years old. What's the sign of the cross? He wonders this for years. Not that maybe he's thinking about it all day, every day, mm -hmm. but he had never seen it. And some seed of grace got planted in his heart watching Kevin or whoever the kid's name is do the sign of the cross. Finally, at 15, I don't know if he had enough like cloud in the orphanage to get on Google and figures this out, gets himself a Bible in Arabic and just starts reading the Bible and then leads himself into Catholicism, you know? <laughs> And uh, and I love that story because it shows like God can use just the slightest, tiniest little ray of hope and truth uh -huh. to make it into someone. And so, you know, this talk about bad parishes. Um, we, I had a guy who loves to watch church militant be willing to walk him through personal catechesis um, so as to enter the church at Easter. Uh -huh. Well, my pastor said in this other state outside of here said, no, if he doesn't join RC, my RCA, which the pastor wasn't teaching, he said, he can't enter the church. I said, if he goes to public RCA, he will be killed, physically killed. Mm -hmm. I have him set up in private catechesis with someone I trust very much. He said, if he doesn't do it, he can't. I said, I, it doesn't have to be a traditional Latin mass baptism. You can baptize. This wasn't a turf war. I said, you can baptism at the Easter vigil, a Novus Ordo Easter vigil. I, this isn't, nope, he has to take it. So you know what I did? I ended up baptizing him in a sink because we couldn't get a parish to accommodate for that. And this is the thing. This is what Catholics out there need to understand. This is the difference between a modernist Catholic and a real Catholic is we really believe in heaven and hell. This is what evangelization comes down to. It's not about making someone feel good about themselves. Evangelization is the realization that I'm going to spend trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years in heaven, or I'm going to spend trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years in hell. This is why we want people to come to know Jesus as your best friend. 
and as your God and as your Savior. Not to be like me, not to have a slightly easier life where you can get through it with a little emotional support. It's because the blood of Jesus is so valuable at what he shed because of the value of the soul. This is why we evangelize. Not to make me feel good, not to make that Muslim kid feel good, but because his sins get washed away in the sacraments. And we want them to live forever. And whatever these priests, you, you know, the priests that said to you at that festival, why would you evangelize? Ultimately, if you just kept, you know, whittling away at their faith, ultimately they would admit they believe everybody's saved. Yeah. Everybody's saved. And so this is where it comes down to the importance of evangelization. Yeah, because if everybody's saved, why bother? Why waste your time? Yeah. Why, why even us be Catholic? There's a lot of easier things to be out there. Yeah, why would I want to annoy somebody with the thought of eternal burning forever if we're all going to heaven anyway? That's just obnoxious. And your hero, St. Francis Xavier, is pretty much one of the dumbest people in the world, if that's the case. That's right. And he, I mean, and that's, that's why he baptized hundreds of thousands of people is because he, he really believed um jesus was the only way to the father wait where have we heard that oh jesus said it <laughs> jesus said i am the only way to the father <laughs> you know uh and and he gave his everything for this god gave him miracles too but you know the last book i read on him was written by a jesuit in 1950 and uh though the jesuit admits the miracles were real he really says it was his burning love of everybody he met that just enthralled them enough to say if this is what this religion is marked by, that's what I want. And so not all of us are going to be given miracles, but if people see supernatural charity, um, they're going to say, this is the real deal. This is the real deal, and I want that. In fact, I was telling you off the air a story of, uh, I know an international missionary, and she's, she's sort of a, probably one of the only people I know who is in the unity stage of prayer. So what she does really God just anoints. And this is one of those examples. She was living and working in Rangoon, um, Burma slash Myanmar. I think they changed the name 20 years ago, 30 years ago, or at least in English. So she's in Rangoon. You can picture somewhere, you know, this is Southeast Asia. So it's not too far from Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. And uh, this part of Rangoon is run by... Um, really some dudes who were involved in these heroin dens, men, men in heroin dens. She was living with a group of nuns, and they had uh, um, a lot of perpetual adoration. But their goal was to actually evangelize. Well, there was so much danger with all these competing heroin gangs in Rangoon. So picture a huge modern Asian city. And there was too, it was too dangerous for, that, for the nuns to go out and evangelize. Well, my friend is pretty fearless. She's blonde hair, freckles. But just loves people and somehow is is just goes in the middle. She's not good at languages, any of that, but she just loves intensely. So she meets um, this little girl in a playground, maybe a mile or two from the nuns that she's living with. We'll call my friend Sarah. And we can't use her real name right now, but this is a true story. And so um, she gets to know this girl. And with all of her international missionary abilities and all the places she's evangelized, she just feels called to spend time with this eight-year-old girl in this in this um, playground. So she goes and plays with her every day. My friend doesn't speak a word of Burmese, not a word of Burmese. And they just play on the swing set and everything. Well, the little girl takes her hand and she brings her back to uh, this, this home. Now, there's only women around, and it turns out this little girl it was raised nominally Buddhist, and there's never any dads around the house because there are, turns out, um, they're all out doing their heroin things. So this girl is basically being raised without a dad by women and all these other moms, almost single moms, with their other kids around, right? So this girl really takes a liking to my friend Sarah and starts following her around, and they hang out. And uh, Sarah goes back to the monastery a mile or two away, the convent. She doesn't know this little eight-year-old girl is following her. So she goes back, and she goes into adoration. All the nuns are, are on the floor in adoration. And this little girl, raised nominally Buddhist, comes in and is scanning the room for my friend Sarah, and her eyes make contact with the host in the monstrance. And the little girl runs to the foot of the monstrance and falls down weeping and looks up at the host and starts crying with love in her eyes. 
my father, my father, daddy, daddy, as she's looking at the host. <laughs> and, like, the girl's never been in a Catholic church her whole life. Yeah, yeah. Supernaturally, and all the nuns just start just weeping at the beauty of, like, literally, they're watching a Eucharistic miracle right now, right? Because, and then so my friend Sarah's like, okay, you know, after they're just all in awe and this girl is done with her prayers, my, my friend Sarah says, okay, honey, like, let's, let's go, takes her hand and walks her back the two miles um, and goes in. Well, she, she brings her up to this place and uh, the dads are back. These, like, heroin dudes are back. The ones, the gangsters who are running the whole thing. And the little girl just pours her heart out to, like, this experience that she had and, and tells the, the mom and the dad and the people around or whatever. And um, what happens is they're so impressed with this girl's story. And I don't know if the, if the mom or the dads or the, or the gangsters ended up going to the convent or whatever, but something happened along the way because of this girl experiencing our Lord in the Eucharist that these heroin den leaders opened up the neighborhood for the nuns to evangelize. They allowed them, they said, you know what, we're going to give them free pass because of whatever this girl's talking about. We're going to give them protection to, to walk around and do their religious thing, whatever that was. So uh, these nuns then get to do their contemplation and their evangelization because of this. Now, this is what's so interesting about my friend Sarah in this story is she didn't have Burmese down as a language, so that shows you don't have to be have perfect catechesis. Now, my friend does have great catechesis, and she knows the scriptures really, really well. But in this case, there was no sharing of information, just a sharing of hearts. And through that love, and again, I'm not one of those people that misquotes St. Francis of Assisi who says, preach the gospel, always use words if necessary. Anytime someone says that to me, I'm like, yeah. And he did use words. He went and he tried to convert the sultan of, of Syria with his words. So... So obviously words are important and my friend Sarah is she'll be the first to she'll even use threats of hell if someone's really bad I mean she'll use words all the time but this is the reason I tell this story Steve is so people can understand you don't have to be have a perfect mastery of any language not even English um, because if you are doing your best God's gonna bless and you're not a heretic so make sure you're not speaking anything that's erroneous but if you're doing your best and you're not a heretic God can just anoint your work with all these miracles, just like this. what happened with this girl, you know? So this is one of those things where, and here's the other thing that story shows, we have to commit our lives to Eucharistic prayer. That's hard when we're all in lockdown or whatever else, but you, people can still make um, uh, spiritual acts of communion. Be praying your rosary all day for the people you're going to meet, because when prayer is conjoined to evangelization, then God does the heavy lifting. No, you're right. I mean, I don't want to say just do it, but... Yeah, just do it. That's what it comes down yeah. to. Just do it. Yeah, yep. he'll give you the words if you need it. Exactly. Um, you do a lot with pro-life. How's that? How is evangelization at the pro-life pro events or abortion clinics? How does that work? Yeah, so I'm, I'm restarting that starting tomorrow. I got a buddy. He's about 60 years old, and we're going to start. Um, he's an amazing, amazing evangelist at these. Uh, he's a convert, actually, from evangelical Christianity to Catholicism just a couple years ago. And he uh, actually he's putting my name on Facebook. I can say his name. His name's Kevin Williams. You, you guys may be friends on Facebook, but he's got a really amazing presence both in real life and online. And we're going to start going to the uh, second biggest Planned Parenthood in the world, just 20 minutes from my hermitage here in Denver. And uh, it's been a while since I've sidewalk counseled, and I don't feel too comfortable doing it right now, but he's been doing it nonstop. So I said, you know what? I have two or three hours of Psalms to pray today. Why don't I be praying and you just do the sidewalk counseling? And there's some other great Catholic women in Denver who are going to be doing it. But, you know, evangelizing at the abortion center is a very interesting place because there's so much spiritual attack. Most people aren't made for it. I wouldn't suggest most people do it. It's a very, very specific calling. I would suggest everyone get out there and try to do one rosary a week. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to live your life in front of that place, it's pretty hard. But the, the, the power of it is because the innocent are being slaughtered. Remember when Jesus said, what you do to the least of my people, you do to me. That means that is Calvary. That is where Jesus is being executed again. And if you look in the Bible, what happens at the cross it's the no-spin zone. I don't mean that like Fox News means it. I mean, 
that you can see truth as truth is at that moment. And it's, it's a terrifying nakedness to all of reality when you're at the abortion center because you see what people are made of. People who are kind of like mildly angry at Christians become ravenously angry at Christians. And people who mildly might forgive their, their enemies. Someone just told me yesterday, um, they got, their friend got spit in the face, literally spit in the face recently being being there just like our lord did you know so it's so much like calvary where you see angels and demons for what they are you see people for what they are and so there's a real nakedness of the heart to see the truth there um now obviously most people just number wise who are going to an abortion center already have their will set on on killing this child but you know when that grace comes through it can be a flood of incredible graces. Um, there was uh, one girl when I was living in New Orleans, and she was going in, beautiful black girl, about 22, walking into the abortion center, and she had like a pillow and a teddy bear, and you could see she must have been three months pregnant. And I just, I, you know, there's all these ways you can say things to people, and I just said, you know, you look like you don't want to go in there. And she goes, I don't know. I said, why don't we go to breakfast? It was like nine in the morning in New Orleans. And she goes, okay. And so obviously as a priest, I'm not going to take out a young woman by myself. So I said, I said, Cammie, come here. So I, I, I brought a 60 year old woman who was also doing sidewalk counseling. And so we went out to eat. Little did I know, they actually called their private, the abortion center was so mad that this happened. They called their private bounty hunter to go after me. But we were long gone, and we got her to a, uh, a place in Metairie. It's a Catholic um, crisis pregnancy center. They gave her the pictures of her baby, and she loved it. You know, she loved it. And so I thought, great, save. And I said, hey, Cammie, let's go out for lunch. And the, the, the crisis pregnancy center, they, they treat sort of sidewalk counselors like we're just these mad-eyed crazies that do our work, but then you need to get lost so we can calm these people down. So I obeyed them. Like I said, Cammy and I were going to get lunch so they could do their thing with our with the gal we brought in. But she wanted to go to lunch with us. So I was like, okay, come on to lunch. So, she, so we went to lunch. And then after lunch, I said, Cammy, I need some tea. I'm a big tea fan. And I said, and then she looked. I was like, you want to come too? She's like, yeah. So, you know, bounty hunters after me like a kid come with us through the day. And, and, you know, sometimes when you have a save, it's not always going to be a save. And so I was really worried about her. Well, she had her baby uh, six months later and um, really, really, really beautiful child. And we've stayed in touch. And then I have a good friend in Arizona who's got a lot of money and he's helped her get through college. Um, and then uh, she agreed to read some Catholic books. I just sent her some Catholic books a few months ago. Um, and I would never say, you know, okay, you're only going to get money from my friend to get through college if you become Catholic. I always make sure these two things are separate or whatever else, right? Yeah. Um, but because of what it meant to her that Catholics saved her baby's life, she's open to it. And and no one has made her like an easy target to brainwash just because she was in front of that. I've always made it clear, don't become Catholic unless you're intellectually convinced this is the truth. Mm -hmm. But would you read this book? Sure, I'll read that book, you know? So this ties in what we were talking about 40 minutes ago. You got to keep up with the people if you can um, that that you're bringing along. You know. No, amen. Uh, there's a the one group I like uh, uh, using the St. Paul Street team. They even told me one time we were talking. They didn't know what step two was. Mm. And I was because they I told them what I do on the, my website, and I was floored that you know these guys are all over the world, and here they are asking me, yeah, we don't know what step two is. Right. So we're getting him in, but we're not following up. We're not, we don't know what happens with him afterwards. Yeah, it's going to be different than getting him on an email sheet. Uh, but, I mean, do we get him, you know, what do yeah. what, what do you do? You, I mean, some people yep. just, I mean, even though those guys, like you say, on a plane or a car, mm -hmm. you're probably never going to see them again. Yeah. Uh, you got to have, a, you know, pray for them, say masses for them, etc. Um, yeah. What other tips? You know, when it Let's talk about a couple books we can we can plug for part two. My new favorite go-to is the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X. Mm -hmm. Here's why I like that more than the Baltimore Catechism. I shouldn't say more. The Baltimore Catechism is really, really awesome too, but it's 
it's big and people in the 1950s had a much better uh, attention span than people in 2020. The, the catechism of Pope St. Pius X is like an eighth the size of the Baltimore catechism. You can, you can read the catechism, even though it sounds like a bigger deal, catechism of Pope St. Pius X sounds like it's going to be long and hard. It's just question and answer, shorter than the Baltimore catechism. You can get it off a of Turner Press, probably tan also. Um, for seven, eight, nine bucks. So I try to buy those in bulk. And, you know, I think, again, we think that postmodern man is so wimpy and can't handle the truth. They can. If Again, if people see that you are speaking the love that they've longed for their whole life, they can take the hard truths in a simple question and answer. It doesn't have to have all the floweriness and, you know, of, of some more modern catechisms around it. Just simply the question and answer is a really great way. And if people can't sit down for two hours, because again, people in 2020 don't have good attention spans, in charity, we can meet people in their weakness and say, I'll tell you what, can you read this 15 minutes a day and it'll take you two weeks? I'll try. Then you have to push them and say, no, no, then I'm not going to give you the book. If you can't commit to 15 minutes, it's probably, and then most people will be like, okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll read it 15 minutes a day, you know? And then, and then they're fascinated because it's, it's, it's just the meat and potatoes of Catholicism. So I think that's a really great way. Does everybody have the power to do, you know, super deep discursive mental prayer? Yeah, I actually, I think they do, but that's hard. It's not that people don't have the ability, it's just, it's hard, but everybody can say a rosary day. And that's where we, I think the other part, big part of step two is once someone's a convert, beg them, beg them, beg them, beg them, Please get in five decades a day. If you can, 15, awesome. All the more powerful will, will be your closeness to Our Lady and Our Lord. But I really think the, the big thing at step two needs to be um, pray the daily rosary. Now, it's funny you brought that up and you mentioned books because uh, Tan does sell Secret of the Rosary for a dollar if you buy in bulk. Great. And every time I've gone to a secular festival to give things away, rosaries, medals, books, I give away more secret rosary books at secular groups than I do at Catholic events. Wow. Wow. I have no idea why that doesn't make any sense, but it's easier to give a book away at a secular festival. Amazing. Where, yeah. You know, and see, this is, this is where too many Catholic groups are taking their lead from Protestants of like, um, yeah, there's, there's just a lot of, of evangelization groups right now that are essentially Protestants that believe in the true presence of the Eucharist. And you know what? Most of the world can enter into the mystery before they are ready to give their life to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Again, every Catholic out there should accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not one of the main top five goals besides baptism of where we want to get people to. But like, let me give you an example. I knew a guy... Um, who was doing on-campus evangelization. He was leading a Bible study for a bunch of football players at ISU 20 years ago. And um, this was like, they were using Scott Hahn material. And I love Scott Hahn. I think he does a good job at all the Bible study stuff. But one of these football players saw on his bookshelf the book of Incorruptibles, uh, which I think Tan didn't tell me to say all these Tan books, but I think you guys sell or I don't know. It's one of those Bob and, there's a Bob and Penny Lord one and then the black one. I can't remember. Joe Carroll Cruz. Yeah, right. Cruz. And so they see that on his wall and they're like, what's that? And so he shows them the pictures of all these saints of people who died 100 years ago, 200 years ago, literally over 1,000 years ago who looked like they died yesterday. These football players are like enthralled. In fact, they were so enthralled with this book. They wanted to talk about that, read it, and look at it more than they wanted to do the Scott Hahn Bible studies to the point that my friend had to tell this ISU football team, okay, we'll do one incorruptible story <laughs> at the end of bible study if you come to the whole bible study we'll do an incorruptible story so it was like the bible study was dinner and the incorruptible story was the dessert but they they were more excited about the incorruptibles than they were about the scott Hahn bible study now i'm not saying incorruptibles is higher than the very word of god the, the word of god is the highest level of written divine revelation i've, I've debated traditionalists with this who don't even believe that i'm all about the bible the church fathers all had the Bible memorized. I mean, I'm all about scripture right, and right. scriptural apologetics, but it shows something of the modern mind that we Catholics think people can handle a lot less than they can. Mm -hmm. Like, well, maybe we'll tell them about incorruptibles in five years. No, people, people can handle the mystery. And so guess what? Maybe some dude on a football team who looks at the incorruptibles gets this understanding 
there's more behind the veil than what I see. Because what is looking at an incorruptible body do? It shows you a few things. It shows you that the resurrection of the body is real. Mm -hmm. It shows you that that corruption is the effect of sin. It shows you that um, I'm going to be underground in a hundred years or less, rotting. And there, there maybe there is something more to think about than this. So there's, in other words, what I'm trying to say is. There's about 20 points of evangelization just looking at an incorruptible person's body mm-hmm. that a lot of modernist Catholics who are excited about evangelization never even thought of. Oh, no. And by the way, all the crews, all her, all her books are just fantastic. The yeah. Eucharist awesome. Miracles, Our Lady, miraculous stuff for her. Just family saints, lay saints. I don't know how she, when did she eat? She wrote so much. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, you know what? I was converted by one of those books. I was this, uh, I had my, I tried to get my hair dreaded up in high school, but or no, right after high school. And I had like uh, braids that I was trying to, I had the uh, Amnesty International t-shirt on. I was sometimes smoking pot. I was like, I was Catholic, but I was a social justice Catholic. And I was going to the soup kitchens in downtown Denver. And I mean, I'd smoke a lot of pot, maybe occasionally, but basically like I, I had never heard in my 10 years of Catholic grade school in Denver or my four years at the Jesuit high school out here mm-hmm. that Jesus was truly present in the Eucharist. So my, my third, I think my junior year in high school, I was hanging out with a buddy and his dad was a conservative EWTN Catholic. Now I'm like far to the right of him as a traditionalist, but whatever. EWTN at that point in my life was far to my right, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he started asking me personal questions about my life. He was a grumpy old Korean war vet. And he, you know, my friend and I'd be out, I'd, we'd be playing chess at, um, what was the place on 17th, St. Mark's or, or Mercury Cafe. Mm-hmm. And then we'd come back from a coffee shop and and uh, be at his place in Aurora, maybe at 10 p.m. And his old dad had come hobbling down the stairs with his uh, oxygen tank. And he'd ask me questions about my life. And he'd be like, you shouldn't be going to communion with those sins on your heart. And I'm like, who are you to tell me this and this, you know? And then he gave me a book on Eucharistic Miracles by uh, either Bob and Penny Lord or the Cruz family. I can't remember which one. And I looked through this and I said, you mean this happens every mass? You know, um, and I couldn't use the terms that I now can that, you know, the substance change and the accidents doesn't. The, the, the substance of bread switches to the, the very body, blood, soul and divinity of Jesus. But the accidents of bread and wine stay the same, where in a Eucharistic miracle, both the substance and the accidents change so much so that when the priest says, this is my body, there's a bleeding piece of flesh in his hands. And actually all histology, histology is the study of tissue, all histology has showed it's always cardiac muscle. Mm-hmm. But I didn't learn that till later. But when I saw this, everything lined up for me. Oh, everyone told me up to this point the Eucharist was, you know, the bread of the community and mm-hmm. all these things. When I saw it was physically the Son of God in my hands, I wasn't receiving on the tongue at the time. When I saw it was physically the Son of God in my hands, then everything made sense. Oh, no wonder I have to go to confession for these sins. His name was Pip. No wonder Pip was right that I have to go to confession. And so everything started to fall in the line in my life with the sacraments, with with, uh, getting my life right with God and everything, because a grumpy old Korean war veteran gave me a book of Eucharistic miracles. Here's one. Now, personally, I grew up with a Marine dad. All my coaches when I played ball and every sport were Marine types. They they weren't going to kiss your, you know, backside and say yeah. everything's okay. I mean, you just get off you just get off the sidelines and you're expected to be already warmed up, ready to go and coach <laughs> might call you a name or say, I remember one time saying, "Hey, it's $5 for a ticket and a bucket of popcorn if you're going to stand there." Um, and you know, there's that one scene from uh, uh, League of Their Own when it, Jimmy Dugan's making it, it made a girl cry, and he's he's saying what this what the coach said in front of his parents, <laughs> and then I cried. No, because there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. So yeah. personally, I'm drunk. I wanted to play for Bob Knight, Coach Bob Knight in Indiana. I I, I like that kind of style, rough, hard hitting, give it to me straight. Yeah. There's a lot of people that don't like that way. How do you find that happy or, I don't know, happy medium or how do you feel that out of somebody? Yeah. Well, that's a great question, Steve, because like, I mean, evangelizing men and women is different. Evangelizing different age groups is different. And um, 
maybe I'll give my three points of evangelization right now. Um, the first is when you realize God's opening up a, a chance to talk to somebody, begin to pray right then and there. Just say a Hail Mary, ask the precious blood of Jesus to cover both of you. That's number one, just start to pray because the Holy Ghost gift of counsel is what's going to open your mind to understand how every person needs something different. Let's talk about the Holy Ghost gift of counsel. So there's seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. I kind of use Holy Spirit and Holy Ghost interchangeably. There's seven different gifts, and one of those is counsel. Counsel means you know what to think, what to say, and what to do. And I think in 2020, when life is so unbelievably complex, when everyone has all these different psychological problems, when we're not sure if there's a, a disease or a fake disease ravaging this country, I mean, every, there's no like 1900, you know, 1855 manual to tell you the morality of this stuff. Everything, well, the morality is still the same as it has always been, but really complex situations with people's psyches. How do we do that? Only the Holy Spirit knows when you're in a one-on-one -on -one evangelization, what that person needs the most. And that's where praying, you say, you know, through Mary's hands, please, Holy Spirit, give me the gift of counsel. What happens then is that then you understand what this person needs, you know, because let's say a, a, a Protestant evangelical Marine who grew up in a great family with a great dad uh, can take a hard-hitting hard evangelization. That's going to be really different than, let's say, um, a young a young woman who is abused by a priest as a child. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you say to that latter case, if you're just a tough guy with her and tell her you're Catholic, that you yourself are Catholic and she just has to become Catholic, you've lost her forever. And this is where the Holy Spirit's gift of counsel to make us gentle, especially when we need to be gentle, because the Holy Spirit knows this person's past and their wounds and everything, and you don't. So probably the default actually should be always gentleness instead of hard hitting. And then if the Holy Spirit's gift of counsel opens your eyes that you have to hard hit, do that. But I think the default with everyone should be to go slow and, and in gentle because of how many wounds there is in the Catholic Church and against the Catholic Church these days. Okay, so step one is pray. Two is common ground. What do I mean by common ground? Too many people today believe in ecumenism, which is basically, let's talk about what we agree on and then move on. I don't mean that. So let's say I'm sitting next to an evangelical on an airplane and, and we agree only by the blood of Jesus can you get to heaven. I'm going to say that. I'm going to be like, you know what? You really are correct that um, Jesus is the only way to the Father. I'm going to show what we agree on. One, so they understand Catholicism actually... Um, is a religion of divine revelation, not just social justice. They have to see that because there's so many social justice Catholics who are destroying people's brains and understanding Catholicism. I'm going to say that so they understand this is a religion of divine revelation. And then, um, but I'm going to bring them to the next step. And then I'm going to say, but you know, Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you do not have eternal life within you. And, uh, you know, evangelicals 20 years ago would say that was spiritual. Now the funny thing is they actually say they believe that because they look a few verses later. My flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. Now they believe it's amazing how many megachurch pastors actually believe they have the power to confect the Eucharist through transubstantiation. Even though they don't know the words confect and transubstantiation, they actually believe that. And so now we kind of have to show them, yeah, but you don't have apostolic succession. Anyway, point is. Step two is find common ground, but don't stop there. Find common ground so as to bring them uh, to the next level, you know. And I guess the next level is, that's step number three, is after you've established what they have right in the truth, that's step two. Step three is to challenge them to more truth, to the fullness of truth, which is Catholicism. Oh, very good, very good. Well, Father, you know, believe it or not, we're uh, almost at the uh, end of time on this. Kind of felt like we just okay. started on this. Uh, can we get that? We'll do another one. It's been fun. Yeah, we'll do a part two one down the road. Um, Great. Final thoughts and get a blessing? Yeah, final thoughts is um, I think you said it right. Just do it. That's the whole key to evangelization. Let your default be gentleness, but courage. And, you know, um, our Lady is the great example for that. Be praying, pray three Hail Marys a week for whoever you meet the rest of the week. Uh -huh. Say, you know what, every Sunday I'm going to do three Hail Marys 
even though I think everyone should be doing the daily rose, you do an additional three Hail Marys every Sunday for everyone you're going to meet this week because, um, you know, you don't know whose life you're going to change. Can I, real quick, last story. I There was a guy he had, he was living a super promiscuous life and he was swimming laps 30 years ago at a pool in Florida and just taking a breath between laps, a woman looked over at the next lane and said, I just want you to know Jesus loves you and he died for you and he's the son of God and he died so you could enter heaven. And he just took whatever, he didn't care. For some reason, he hit the other end of the pool and all the grace hit from that single line. She never found this out, but he became a consecrated brother with a religious order in the South, still going strong 30 years later in his vocation. Because one person, while he took a breath at a lap, told him that Jesus loves him. You know, so you don't know if just someone who's checking your stuff out at the at the supermarket or whatever people have to do under coronavirus, Instacart or whatever, you hand, you hand a miraculous medal to the Instacart person that's bringing in, just look him in the eye and say, Jesus loves you. That could be enough to save a soul, you know? Um, yeah, assume that a lot of people have wounds against the church. Assume people uh, assume people are angry at the scandals mm-hmm. in the Catholic Church, as well they should be. Um, but that's not going to stop Jesus from pursuing souls, right? And it also doesn't give them a pass. Um, and this is where we have to still be courageous, but very, very gentle. And, and Our Lady's the key of that, because if you look at the personality of Our Lady and all the uh, and all of her apparitions. She's nothing but pure tenderness, and yet she can show the kids in Fatima hell. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, so yeah. she's the perfect example. Dominus Fobiscum. Et conspiratio. Benedictio Deum Nepotentis, Patris Sufiri, Spiritus Sante, descended super de vos et maniat semper. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Welcome, Steve.